So we uh, have been in a passage uh, in, that, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 9, is going to kind of be the foundation. It was the foundation for last week. It's going to be the foundation for the next couple of weeks. And I want you to look at uh, verse 4 through 9. We're going to read it once, and then we're going to kind of hone in on verse 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We spoke about that in depth last week. If you were not here for that message, we encourage you to go online to our website. You can get it there and encourage you to catch up uh, with that series. Verse 5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so our, the love that we have for people is not built on a Cupid shooting type of love, but it's an intentional life-altering type of love, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your being, that every ounce of you would serve God. And as you serve God, and as you love God, Jesus says, the greatest commandment is like this, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? But he said, the second is like it. And that is that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And we know that it's impossible to love your wife well, your children well, your neighbor well, your friends well, your enemies well, if you don't first love God well. And so with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So we know that love is the basis for all things. Why? Because it's eternal. The contributions that you make this week towards loving your wife, towards loving your kids, and loving your neighbor have the ability to transcend not only all boundaries, but all time. They can be eternal decisions. And so if you and I would look through the lens of making love matter, it's eternal. It's not just some temporal gain, but it's actually something, it's a deposit that we make in their life that could affect them for the rest of their lives and ultimately could be remembered one day in the heavenly realms. And then verse six, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you should talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them down on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So we know that our love should drive us to an action, which love itself is an action, but should drive us to several things. We know that we're to take some information and we're to impart it to who? To our children. You impart these to your children. And then you talk about it when? All the time. All the time. When you sit and when you rise, when you come, when you go, when you lie down, when you get up, you should be talking about life and matters of faith. And what's interesting is, is that statistics would say that you and I only talk about things of faith right now. Right now. This is the only time that you talk about things of faith. You don't talk about them at the dinner table. You don't talk about it on your way to school with your kids. You don't talk about it after soccer practice. You don't talk about it after a Disney movie that presented some truth and some fiction, some lie. You don't talk about it when their coach degrades and screams at them. You don't talk about these things. We don't talk about these things. I don't talk about these things. And so the reason why we don't talk about these things is actually rested right there in verse 6. And these words, I command you today, shall be on your heart. And the word there, uh, these words, is actually the word dabar. It's D-A-B-A-R in the Hebrew. 
And it literally means as God speaks, as he utters, you should what? Write it on the tablet of your heart. You should know it. And you should be able to what? Instruct your children with such words. But what's interesting is, is we have a difficult time teaching our children these things. And here's why. You cannot give your children something that you do not possess yourselves. You cannot give your children something that you don't possess yourselves. See, what I'm talking about today is a worldview. Every one of us has a worldview, but very few of us have a biblical worldview. Now, let me give you a definition of worldview so that you and I see it and we can kind of wrap our heads around it before I give you kind of where we are in today's society. A worldview is how a person truly views the world. So it encompasses all these things. It's a person's worldview consists of values, ideas, or a fundamental belief system that does these three, three or four things. It determines your attitude. It determines your beliefs, and ultimately it determines on how you respond or act. It, re, it determines your actions. The, w- the way I would like to think of it is, as Francis Schaeffer said, it, it's kind of the lens in which you view all things. So it's almost as if we, in our natural flesh, are born with a set of glasses that are somewhat foggy. And after Jesus Christ comes into our life, he takes the foggy glasses off and he desires to put on a new fresh pair that sees 20-20 vision. And when you put those things on, you begin to notice that I'm seeing things differently than I formerly did. And the way you do that is through several means. One, Ephesians 1 says it's the deposit of the Holy Spirit. So as the Holy Spirit lives in your life, you can no longer live in all-out contradiction to God. The Spirit begins to draw you closer to Jesus and closer to the things of the Word. But the Word, the things that are spoken, the things that are uttered, are the things that we are to write and teach. Matter of fact, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God, and the Word was God. What's interesting is, is that Word there Logos is a similar word to the Hebrew word to ball. Why? Because it literally means to utter. And so we know that in the Old Testament, God uttered through a spoken word to his people. He did it through dreams and visions. At one point, as they mentioned on here, a burning bush, the kids said, right? The Holy Spirit. Then he came in the natural supernatural flesh, God incarnate, and he spoke among natural beings. And he spoke, he said, there was the word and he was present. And now he speaks through the Holy Spirit. And so we know the father has spoken, the son has spoken, and even now it is the spirit who speaks, right? It is truly verse four, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. He speaks, although he's one, father, son, Holy Spirit. He speaks as one. And he says, I am uttering important words Write those down in your heart and teach them to your kids. And the things that you know about the word, know about God, actually influence your attitude, your beliefs, and your actions. And it becomes a new worldview, a biblical worldview. Let me put it like this, because some of us have a difficult time thinking like worldview. But let's just say that we were to walk into a rotunda that was a library, and all the way around you, there were books and books and books and books. There were some... Old books, 
There were some new books. There were some thick books. There were some thin books. There were some black books, brown books, white books, yellow books, orange books. And as you looked at all of these books, you began to realize that every single one of them had a different title. There were some that said Christianity. There was some that said New Age. There was some that said mysticism. There was some that said Buddhism. There were some that said uh, Mormonism. There were some that said, what? Take your pick. And it's just this library, and then there's a handful that's there in the room that are Christians among all these other people. And that's you and I. We live in a world that's literally a library. You have young and old. You have short and tall. You have thick and thin. You have all different colors. And it's the way that we view our world. George Barnum, the leading guy in statistics among Christian circles, has been in business since 1984, is a guy who is super solid. He quoted this. He said, although most people own a Bible and know some of the content, our research found that most Americans have little idea how to integrate core biblical principles to form a unified and meaningful response to the challenges and opportunities of life. So although most Americans own a Bible, very few are able to use it to interpret its meaning and most of all to apply it to their life, which I think is one of the reasons that people actually really like Stone Point. And the reason why is not because we're super great at a lot of things, but one of the things we hear all the time is that you can put it on a, on a shelf where we could understand and for so long, our pastors have presented techniques and, uh, and they've given you so much information, but things that you couldn't necessarily learn and apply. And that's actually, I think, part of the reason that we are where we are. Now, interesting enough, I'm going to give you several statistics to kind of give you the state of our churches, the state of our nation. And I'm going to give you a handful of things that are facing our country even now. And I'm going to show you why we're this way. Interesting enough, a few years ago, I actually read a statistic that said nearly 80% believe that there's a God. Well, Barna said of one of 10 areas of research that he found super interesting in 2015, one of those was this. 78% of Americans would believe that there is a God. 78% of Americans believe that there is a God. But what's interesting is when you start talking about it, as the old country song would say, you love God, you love your family, and of course, you love the good old U.S. of A. What he said is we've actually got all of those things out of whack. And family is the top priority with country second, God third, amidst of several other things. And look at this, 62%, 62% said family is their top priority. 10% lower than that. So at 52%, people would say country is the most important. And then from there, it goes to God. And 38% of Americans would say God is the most important thing. And so they would say God, family, country, etc. But for the most part, it then falls in line with many other things, ethnic groups, career, your state, even your community, which are all bringing in numbers that got them in the top seven. 
Now, what's crazy is this. If you have 78% of your country who says, I believe in God, but yet 38% of them would say that faith is the top priority, you know we're already heading the wrong direction. Why? Because in Matthew 7, Jesus said, you'll know those who are my disciples by their fruit. Their actions will actually determine their belief system. Their thoughts, the things they perceive and the decisions they make will show you who they really are. And what's interesting is, is that we look at these and we may not, oh, it's not too big of a deal. But get this, 50% of the U.S. would say that the Bible is real and 79% of those who claim to be born again. So four out of five almost would say that the Bible is real. So <clears throat> out of the 78% that you have that believe that there is indeed a God, 38% of them say their faith is the most important thing. Of those, you have, what, 80% of those who would say they believe the Bible to be true, that it's relevant, that the stories are real. So they would almost say in some way that the Bible is a legitimate contender and something we should read. Is that what y'all get? Yes? So if the Bible is a legitimate contender, it should be on our book list. It should be something that's on our Kindle. It should be something that we read occasionally. Why do the other numbers that I'm about to give you follow? 36% of Americans and only 46% of Christians, people who claim to be born again, believe that there's an absolute truth. Meaning that the Bible actually dictates your response in life. That there's a fixed point. That there's something that you would say, regardless of what society is saying, regardless of what Supreme Court justice are voting on, regardless of what our president or our mayor or anybody in politics is pointing us to, regardless of what uh, Planned Parenthood is doing, regardless of what other churches are doing, there's one source that's a fixed point of truth that we're going to determine. Only, listen, 46% of believers... People who claim to know and follow God would say that the Bible gives you that. 70% of our nation says, though, that they believe that God is an all-powerful, so omnipotent, all-knowing cre cre uh, creator and, and lover. That he, he knows all things. He's the creator of the universe. 93% of Christians would say that. So they would say, like, I believe in the Bible, believe it's a great book we should read. I believe that God is all-powerful. I just don't believe that everything that's in there is real. Interesting enough, look how it goes, though. Only 56% of um, people, Americans, all the way across the board, actually believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. Actually, that's among Christians. Let me show you this next one. So see all these circles here? 62% were boomers, or I mean elders, 58% were boomers, and then it continues all the way down to millennials. Well, millennials is the lowest. I'll show you another staggering statistic. And 56% is actually down from 62% in 2009. So just in the last seven years, we've actually dropped percentage points. Now, 72% of Americans and 53% of evangelicals actually believe this, that you can get to heaven by your works. So 78% of Americans believe in God. 72% of them believe that I can get to God by my works. And in Christian circles, actually half of them or a little more than half say that I get to God on the basis of my works or deeds. Interesting 
We believe that God is all-powerful, that he's real, that he controls everything, created the universe, etc. But only 27% of the U.S. population and 40%, four out of every 10 Christians, actually believe that Satan is real. So we love the idea of a big book that sits on our coffee table. We love the idea of a God out there that is outside of time and space. But we don't like the idea that there's a real adversary. And we love the idea that if we do enough, we're nice enough, kind enough, loving enough, do more good moral things than bad moral things, then at the end of our days, we will stand before God and he'll say, why should I let you in? And you and I would say, because I am better than a lot of people. I recently shared my faith with someone and I was talking to him and I said, would God let you into heaven? And he said, I really believe that he would. And I said, really? I said, why? And he said, well, Brandon, don't get me wrong, man. My life has been in shambles. And I said, well, how long has your life been in shambles? He goes, really, truly all my life. I said, all your life? He goes, truly. He said, honestly, I wasn't raised in church. And I was like, I get it, man. And um, he said, I I really, I just, it's been rough. And I said, but you feel like if you were to die today that, that you would go to heaven? And he goes, yes, I really do. And I said, what, what helps you determine your decision? Like your logic in this decision, how, what is it? He goes, well, Brandon, although my life's been in shambles and I haven't been raised in church, I look around at the people that I see. And he said, I know that I'm a good person. And I said, like what? He goes, I, I mean, I'm just kind. I'm not, I'm not mean to people. I'm not mean spirit. I don't have a bunch of, you know, problems over here that I'm hiding. I'm, you know, I don't cheat on my wife. I, you know, but I'm, don't be wrong. I have a lot of improvement. And I said, I get it. We all have improvement to make. And isn't that true? Yeah, all of us. And, uh, and I said, so if God were standing right in front of you and he said, why should I let you into heaven? And I said, you would just say that I believe that I'm a good person and I've done more good things than bad things. And I said, at the end of your day, you're hoping that the scales balance out. And he goes, that's truly it. And I said, so do you go to bed at night or even at the end of your days? I said, do you feel like it's flipping a coin? And he goes, no, I don't feel like it's flipping a coin at all. And I said, so you're telling me that if you lay your head down tonight, it's not a flip of a coin, a 50-50, like you feel certain God's going to let you in on the basis of your deeds. And he says, yes. What's awesome is we spent the next two hours talking about the Bible and the scripture and what God really says. And that gentleman is now a believer in Jesus Christ. And, but I'll tell you that story because that is so many people in this room and so many people in our communities. And the Bible says it can't be. So you see all these numbers. And what's interesting is this. 78% of our nation believes there's in God and 9% have a biblical worldview. Their glasses have been replaced. Among millennials, born from 1980 to about 2000, half of 1% have a biblical worldview. Now, I don't find all this too, too surprising because... I see where we are among our faith trends and also our political trends. Matter of fact, politics, where we are right now, talking about 
candidates for the president of the United States. Look at this. The sixth most important factor among evangelicals and our country is faith matters. And it follows key issues, character, political experience, party affiliation, and education. And it's at a dismal 9% of voters care about faith. So we would rather care about building walls around our country than we would about making God and his word the key issue where we make our decisions. And I say that in light of this, you have many things to consider, and I'm not going to get on this very long, but I'll tell you, you have many things to consider. You have sheriff, you have uh, senators, you have national leaders, you have a president. And I can just encourage you, please quit listening to everybody on Facebook, quit making your own opinions and base it off of something other than your relationship with somebody you've had for 40 years. Maybe ask the question, do they have a solid faith? Because I'm going to vote over someone who has a solid faith and believes in Jesus Christ and they are being led by him over someone with experience or education. And you may call me wrong, you may not agree, and that's okay, but I just tell you that we are getting in our country what we voted for. And all the while, it's evangelical leaders who stand up and say, we've taken prayer out of schools, we've We elected them. We live in a democracy. We vote. We elect. And they lead. It is no surprise that our country is where it is off these statistics. Why? Because our country is in disarray. So what is the problem? (laughs) What is the problem? I don't know that you need me at this point, do you? The problem is, is that as Christians, people in evangelical circles, born again people, we would say, first of all, our number one problem is, is that our words are not consistent with our actions. Right? So we claim to be a Christian nation, but we're not demonstrating in our lifestyles. We claim to love God, yet we do do not demonstrate it in our walks, in our circles, in our friendships, in our decisions, whether it be any of the things that we've mentioned or even in our family's lives. We are not sitting down and teaching our kids anything of concrete truth. Why? Because we don't possess the truth ourselves, which simply means number two problem is that we're not leading our children in a biblical worldview. So the reason we are where we are and our actions aren't consistent with our words is because we're not being taught and we're not teaching our children either we would see that in Barnes' research that the family has declined each of the last 15 years consistently. They're not getting better. They're not improving. They're actually getting worse. Isn't this a beatdown? I walked in here today feeling like a lousy parent, a lousy pastor. Why? Because it's not just the family's problem, although it is the family's problem but it's also the church's problem. I shared with you week one of this series that 51% of American pastors don't actually possess a biblical worldview. So that means half of the country's churches today are not teaching this. They're not talking about this. They're talking about other things, and it's certainly not how to start at home. And so what should we do? 
Well, we should know that we have a, a huge epidemic. What is the epidemic? 3,500 churches this year will close their doors in America. Why? Because we're in bad shape. We're not equipping people. And if we don't equip the church, those who are the church, then guess what? The building, which so many people have looked to for so long, will actually shut its doors. The brick and the mortar will corrode. The, te the steeple at the top will one day bear no more paint. It will sit in the middle of a community and no one will attend. And so I say to you, church, it's time to get our focus off of buildings and put it on people. Doesn't mean that we don't need buildings, but the thing is, is that there is no point in building big buildings if your people will not possess them. No, people, no point in having people possess and be in a building if you're not going to train them and equip them. No point really in us even being here this morning unless we truly are going to decide to get fit and in some ways to say we're going to take back the American family. Because I think all of us can say as we look across right now, at least in my mind, every single candidate just about, you would say, I don't think they're going to change America over the next four years. And so where is it going to have to start? It starts, as Joshua said, with our homes. And so what are we going to do about it? Like, where do we start? What do we do about it? Well, here you go. Number one, we have to place authority on God's word above all else. Understand? Like there has to be a point in us in here at some point that you determine for yourself, is the Bible a legitimate contender? Is it what's going to win the heavyweight bout? You have to decide this. I'm going to give you some information. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years, over 40 different authors, three different continents, three different languages. Many of the people that wrote never even knew there was each other, but it has this amazing unity. It's withstood the test of time. Even Voltaire, he said that within 100 years of my death, the Bible will no longer be in existence. Well, with 50 years within his death, they were using his home as a Bible printing press. You and I, we teach and hear our, our children speak of things like Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet. What's interesting is we have less than 10 actual copies of the book, Romeo and Juliet, and we have no problem saying that Shakespeare wrote it. We have over 25,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament alone. And we wonder, is the Bible valid and is it real? We have every fragment of the Old Testament with the exception of one book, and that's Esther, that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran community in the 1940s and 50s. And yet we as a church can't decide whether or not that's the fixed point of truth. Even Paul says to Timothy, what? In 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. That means that we're going to take our children and make them to look more like Jesus. It's got to start with a fixed point, a constellation of the sky, and it's the word of God. It has to be the word of God. Why? Because as everybody else is tossed to and fro, as they look here and there for answers, there's got to be one fixed point of truth that our society is based off of. And for us, as for me and my house, if you utter those words, it has to be the Bible. Two, you have to be devoted to biblical teaching, application, prayer, and accountability, and our mission at Stone Point Church. Jesus and John, 
was praying the high priestly prayer for his disciples. And it's an amazing, amazing prayer. He says, God, you have entrusted them in my care. I have protected them. There was only one that slipped out of my hands. And he said, and it was because it was purposed in advance. And that was who? Judas. But look what he says, in, starting in verse 14 of John 17 through 19. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Sound familiar? Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask, Lord, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So the question is, why, after your conversion, did God not just rapture you to heaven? Because there's an intentional purpose in leaving you here so that you would demonstrate your faith and your worldview to other people, that people would see the differences made in you. And what's interesting is he says, I'm not going to take them out of the world. He says, but I do pray that you would protect them from the adversary, the very one who could get them off their course. Would you say that Satan has got us off our course? Yes. Look at verse 16. And they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Look at 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth because your word is truth. Listen, you and I, our church, your family will not be spiritual champions apart from a fixed point of truth, which is, as Jesus says, the word. But if I were to ask you, when's the last time you studied the word? When's the last time that you wrote a scripture on your mirror and memorized it? You would say, I don't know. If I were to poll our kids in kids ministry and I were to have them stand and recite scripture, they would stand longer than their parents. We would stumble around with scripture memory. We know enough about the Bible to be dangerous, but we don't know enough about the Bible to train our kids or to reach people for God and, and his work. Verse 18 then says, as Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, con I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus, I give up my life so that the spirit may manifest their life and you may lead them towards love and good deeds, that they would be spiritual champions based off of the word. Do you know what's interesting? a book that just came out by Ed Stetzer, uh, Ed Stetzer and Warren Bird. 3,500 churches closed their doors this year. You know that? Get this. But the trend has stopped. Why? Because this year there will be 4,000 new churches planted in the States. And what people are seeing in this book called Viral Churches, they report, as Tim Keller said, the only way to increase the number of Christians in a city is to plant thousands of new churches. Because churches are reaching people like the traditional church and the churches of America that have been here for 100 years are no longer doing. So are we going to be about church planting here? You better believe it. We are. And we're going to keep pouring money into that effort. Why? Because we have people to reach. And then listen, lastly, we're going to be committed to training families. We are going to put resources and energy into training. We are actually going to add on to this campus. I just told you earlier, we don't need bigger buildings, right? But we do need strategic buildings. And we need a space, and we're going to bring it off this north side. And guess what? Who's going to have to pay for it? The church. We're not going to do bake sales. We're not going to do community-wide events. We're going to ask you to say it's important enough for my family that I could contribute $250 as a family so that we're able to add on to this building. 
and we want you to help us add a resource area strategically designed as a point of reference for your family that you can go in a moment's notice at the end of a service, before service, you can talk to one of our pastors, you can learn about Connections Point, but more than that, you can grab real tangible resources that you can take home with you for free. And they talk about every instance of life that you are talking about, marriage, divorce, homosexuality, dating, anything that we have in our culture, a biblical approach to it. We'll tell you more about that later, but you need to know we have been preparing that for months already. And uh, I'm excited to tell you more about that. Why? Because 2 Timothy 3.16, I just read it for it to you. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Yes. But our job is to be committed to those things because that's what it does. But look at verse 17, and that is, so the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. And so, can I tell you we have work to do? Yes. Can I tell you where the solution lies? In the word of God. And then not only that, we have to as a church and as churches in the states devise real, tangible, applicable plans to get you as parents, as grandparents, resources in your hands. And then at that point, you have to use them. You have to be strategic. And we're going to talk about that next week. Teaching your kids when they sit and when they rise. Tune in for next week as we talk about biblical parenting and teaching. Struggling in your home? Come next week. Know that there's some family members that their life is in shambles, that they can't get things together? Bring them next week. I think it's going to be awesome. The family is where change begins. And here's what's interesting. Many of us in here would say, I'm not satisfied with where my family is in our faith, in our finances, um, in our spiritual life, in our marriage, in our parenting, all of these things. And you know what's interesting? The very one who can change the outcome is you. And so may God impress that upon your hearts. And as leaders here at Stone Point, may we be devoted to equipping you the best we know how so that you are not the same person next year as you were this year. Amen? Let me pray for you, church. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that you have imparted truth to us. Father, we pray that you would be with us, guide us, direct us and help us to love well, to serve well, to live well, and do it all from a fixed point of truth called the Bible, the word, the word that's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It divides the joint and the marrow. So Lord, would you come in and divide our hearts? Lord, help us to be committed to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.